Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from the first 14 verses, Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. You'll follow along as I read from this portion of uh, the good news about the Lord Jesus, as recorded for us by Matthew the Apostle. Matthew, chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up, up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things? Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell me, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pangs. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets, teachers, prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. A friend of mine recently posted a picture of herself and her fiancé on Facebook. It was one of the Facebook-worthy pictures, this cute couple. And the, the caption of the photo said, 200 days until the wedding. And it reminded me about the excitement of brides. Is there anything like the excitement of a bride who is thinking about her wedding day? All the planning, all of the work, all of the anticipation, all the celebrations, all the moments that you have to resist the temptation to becoming a monstrous bridezilla, all that work, all that time, the anticipation. It's hard to dim the joy of a bride. The world around them might be falling apart, but they're thinking about that, that great day. When I do premarital counseling and I, I see the couple uh, at other occasions, maybe at church on Sunday, I will always ask the bride, so how many days until the wedding? And she knows exactly. You ask the groom and he can get it down to within a couple of months. Is there anything like a bride waiting for her wedding day? We're about to read, we just read the beginning of a couple of chapters we're going to walk through in the next month that tell us that we as Christians are in some important ways like that bride, like a, a bride. We're, we're waiting too. We're waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus. In fact, that's central to identity, central to who we are. We are the people who are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Jesus is going to return and, the, and human history as we know it will come to an end. Human history on earth 
will not come to an end as we know it with an environmental disaster. There are those who say that's what's going to bring an end to life on the planet. That's not what the Bible teaches. We should be good stewards of the planet that God has given us, but uh, uh, the world is not going to end with an environmental disaster. Human history as we know it is not going to end with a nuclear holocaust. We don't worry about that quite as much as we used to in the 80s. Um, we don't think that everybody, every planet and every nation on the planet should have a nuclear missile, but we don't believe the world is going to end in a nuclear holocaust. We do not believe human history is going to end as we know it with an alien invasion. There may be creatures living on other planets. The Bible doesn't say anything about that, but that's not how human history as we know it is going to end. Human history as we know it is not going to end in 5.5 billion years when the sun burns out. Human history as we know it is not going to end with an, a pandemic, another pandemic. It's not going to end with a zombie apocalypse. It's not going to end uh, when we invent a robot that is smart enough to kill us all. Uh, human history as we know it is not going to end when genetically enhanced apes lobotomize and enslave us all. Human history as we know it is going to end when the Lord Jesus returns. For the next month, uh, as Ryan mentioned, we're going to be singing about Christ's first coming, and we're going to be studying what Matthew recorded about Jesus' second coming. And we do so with the same sense of yearning that we already sang this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom your captive people. Uh, we are in lonely exile here, and we're waiting for the Son of God to appear. You should be forewarned as we pick up Matthew chapter 24 that this is one of the most difficult passages in all of the gospel of Matthew. You already knew that if you've been around for a long time. You already knew that because we're talking about the second coming. We're talking about the end times and followers of Jesus don't agree about the circumstances that are going to surround the second coming of Christ. We all agree, all followers of Jesus agree that Jesus is going to return but we disagree about the circumstances surrounding his return. Let me try to, to uh, paint a picture here of some of those major disagreements by thinking about what ha is happening here in Matthew chapter 24. As Matthew 24 opens, Jesus is leaving the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives. And you should see some significance in those very events. Remember Matthew chapter 23, right before this, Jesus has denounced the people of Judah and their rejection of him. He's pronounced judgment on them. He has said to them, your house is left desolate. And then he leaves the temple, the biggest house in all of Palestine, and he goes uh, uh, over to the Mount of Olives, that mount east of Jerusalem, uh, the hill uh, next to the temple. It should maybe remind you of the prophet Ezekiel and a vision that the prophet had. The prophet Ezekiel uh, prophesied during a period of time when the nation of Israel was in great rebellion against God. Uh, there was idolatry everywhere. And, and Ezekiel had this vision of the glory of God leaving the temple and going out to the Mount of Olives. And here, Jesus has spoken to the people about their sin, and he leaves the temple and goes to the Mount of Olives. There's parallels there that are significant. It's also interesting that Jesus here is on the Mount of Olives because the Mount of Olives is an important location in the end times. 
Zechariah the prophet in chapter 14, verse 4, had told us that this is where the Messiah will return when he comes. When the Messiah comes, Zechariah 14, 4, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives talking about the time that he'll return to the Mount of Olives. There's significance there. And as they were leaving the temple, the disciples point out to Jesus the wonderful buildings. Isn't this amazing? Here these yokels from Galilee are in the big city, and they're amazed at the temple, and they should have been. The temple complex was 35 acres. Here's a picture of the temple. It was this, it's a drawing clearly, this massive, here's just a portion of the the center of this massive complex. By the time Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 24, the Jews had been working on the temple for 50 years following the instructions of Herod the Great who started the construction and oversaw it himself for 20 years before he died. The temple um, rivals anything that was in the city of Rome, anything in any other ancient city. The foundation stones are so big that we're still not even sure how they got those stones to where they are in the temple complex. And the disciples are just amazed and they're, they're gawking at this building. And Jesus says in verse two, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That would raise some serious questions. We have in our family photo album uh, a picture from a trip that my family took in uh, the late 80s or the early 90s to New York City. We have a picture of my sister and my mom and I standing on the observation tower of the World Trade Center. Here's a picture of the buildings. For, for the inside, we're standing there looking out. You can, you can see the picture. Now, if, if when we had gotten to the bottom of that building, if we had run into someone who had come up to us and said, truly I say to you that by the time you're 30 years old, these two buildings will collapse in rubble and be huge heaping piles of debris. That would have raised some questions. So the disciples in verse three come to Jesus and they ask him, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, here's the immediate challenge that we have as we read this passage. The disciples think they're asking a question about one event. They think the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus are going to coincide. That's going to be one event. That's what they think when they ask this question. When in reality, there are two events separated by thousands of years. The destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus. These two events, they think they're one, uh, but they're actually two separate events. The temple was destroyed in AD 70, about 35 years or so, actually 40 years or so after Jesus spoke about these things in Matthew chapter 24. In AD 66, 
the Jews uh, uh, rebelled against their Roman occupiers, against the Roman army and the Roman government that was ruling Palestine at the time. And what followed for the next four years was a terrible, bloody, brutal war. Millions of Jews died. It was a, a bloodbath. They were crushed by the Romans. And in AD 70, the culmination of this war, the temple was destroyed. We don't think about that history very much because the history is not in the New Testament. It's not described in the New Testament. Most of the New Testament was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But that's the event that happened. That was probably, that war and the destruction of the temple is probably a fulfillment of the prophecies that Jesus had spoken in Matthew 23. Upon this generation, terrible judgment is going to come. Uh, there is, in, in AD 81... There, uh, 11 years after the temple was destroyed, the Romans built an arch in Rome. Here's a picture of it. This arch that they built in Rome, you could go visit it if you go to Rome, and it celebrates, it's the Arch of Titus, and it celebrates the Roman conquest of Judea. And in fact, inside, here's a picture, inside is a, a carving of uh, Roman soldiers carrying away implements, furniture from the temple. Do you see the menorah there? Uh, they're commemorating the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So that's what the, the disciples are thinking about. They ask that question. But the second question is about his coming. You're coming in the end of the age. And we think that that has still yet to happen. So they think they're asking about one event, the destruction of the temple and your coming, when in reality, as, as the, uh, a history unfolds under God's providence, they're two separate events. The question, as we come to Matthew 24, that there is great debate about, is which question, which of those two questions, those two events, are, is Jesus thinking about? Which one dominates Jesus' answer? On the one hand, I went to a school and I was raised in a church where the, the focus, I was taught that the focus of Matthew 24 is on the second coming, on the events that are still yet in the future that Jesus answers their second question and doesn't really give any attention to the first question at all. And there's good reasons to think that. Look at, um, well, Matthew 24, 20, uh, 21. He says, then there will be great distress. Your translation might say tribulation. Uh, and, and great tribulation are uh, trigger words for some of us as we think about the end times. Then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Or verse 30 says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Clearly, he's speaking there in explicit terms about the second coming. Much of what's in Revelation, uh, sorry, in Matthew 24, sounds like what John writes in the book of Revelation. So there are some followers of Jesus who think that Jesus is focusing mostly on their second question and that he doesn't answer their first question at all. And that's, um, I still hold to that basic uh, framework of events that I, I think Jesus is thinking about the second coming but that not answering that first question seems odd to me. And I'm not sure that Matthew's original readers would have recognized 
that Jesus is ignoring their first question completely. There's another school of thought, one I I don't hold to very much, but there are some good and godly brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that Jesus is thinking not so much about the second coming, but he's thinking more about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and that all the events that he describes here have already happened. The challenge with that view, and there's challenges to both views, the challenge to that view, though, is he does talk about the second coming in pretty specific terms. Our brothers and sisters are inclined to say that, that his coming is coming in judgment and the destruction of the temple is the equivalent to his coming. But that doesn't seem to, to match the weight of what Jesus is saying. I think the best way to approach this passage or the way that we're going to approach this passage on Sunday morning, some of you have studied these details and these things in great detail and, and, and every Sunday you'll want to ask me questions uh, about this and that's fine. I'm happy to have those conversations. This is how we're going to approach it on Sunday morning. I think that the best way to see this is between, to see parallels between these two events. That there are things that happened in AD 70 that were bad judgment that was bad, that, that is repeated or patterned in the second coming. They're elevated and, and magnified in the second coming. Some of the things that Jesus says happened in AD 70, similar things happened in even greater significance, will happen in greater significance when he comes. That's the way that prophecy in the Old Testament often works. Think with me, for example, about uh, Jesus, uh, what God said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, David, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to build the temple for me, and I'm going to have a special loving relationship with your son. In fact, it's going to be as if he's my son. I'm going to adopt him and treat him as if he's my own son. Now, who is that prophecy about? Solomon, sure. David uh, has a son. His name is Solomon. Solomon builds a temple and God loves Solomon. He treats him just like he's his own son. But then I ask the question, who's that prophecy about? And just like in Sunday school, the answer to every good question is Jesus. Jesus is David's great son, and he's not just, uh, uh, he's, he's David's descendant. He's not just God's son by adoption. He's God's son by nature. So there's Solomon and then there's Jesus. One prophecy that applies to Solomon and Jesus. And here in Matthew 24, I think we have a prophecy that refers to AD 70 and the second coming. Something that happened a long time ago and something that is still yet to happen. If you're a grandparent, one of the advantages of being a grandparent is you get to see patterns over generations. So your, um, your grandson is playing with his matchbox cars and you're watching him play with his matchbox cars and you see how he lines them all up and how he smashes them into each other and how he has them jump over things. And, 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 and you see that in your grandson and, and you see, you, you recognize, you elbow your son who's sitting next to you. That's just the way you did that. You're playing with these things, just he's playing with just like you, just like you used to do. What's that grandparent seeing? Patterns, repeated behaviors. And that, I think, is how we should think about this passage. What happened in 8070 was bad, 
the second coming is going to involve even more judgment and more catastrophe. Now, the good news is you do not have to be a master of all of those details in order to benefit from this passage. And the reason you don't have to master all of those details is because Jesus in this passage is more concerned as he thinks about coming judgment with the outlook of his people than he is with the outline of events. I hope to show you that in the passage. I think the events are important. I think we should think about the outline of the events. But Jesus, his teaching, more and more and more in this passage, he gives more weight to the outlook of his people in light of the coming judgment than he does to the outline of events. In other words, Jesus cares more about your, or he gives in this passage more careful attention to your character than he does to the chronology. So that's why you can benefit from this even if you don't have mastery of all of the details. That's good news. Let me show you that this morning uh, as we work our way through verses 4 through 14. Because verses 4 through 14 tell us, Jesus says twice in this passage, these are signs of the end, but not the actual end itself. Signs at the end are close. Signs at the end is close, but not the actual end. So here's some things that are going to happen in AD 70, some things that are going to happen before Jesus comes. And what's striking, though, is how much, though, these signs parallel what the Bible says elsewhere about following Jesus. Really bad in AD 70, really bad before Jesus comes, and even we experience some of these things. And I want to talk to you about these conditions Jesus addresses four conditions that he sees at the end in AD 70 in the second coming, but also they speak to some of the challenges that we face even today. And then we're going to talk about the response. Jesus tells us what the, condition are, uh, what the conditions are and then how we're supposed to respond to them. Remember, Jesus cares more about, uh, gives more attention to character than chronology. So let's start. Conditions. Number one, false teachers. False teachers. Jesus mentions this twice. As the destruction of the temple draws near, as the return of the Lord Jesus draws near, there's going to be false teachers. Verse 5, many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Verse 11, many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. They're going to come, verse 5 says, these False teachers are going to come in my name, implying that maybe they come from the church. And they're going to claim a loyalty that only Jesus deserves. They're going to say, I am the Messiah. The response, our response, or the response to these false teachers is, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you. Now, Jesus is speaking to the people who are uh, living close to these events, but I think this passage speaks to a reality that we all face. And the reality is that when times are hard, we all want to find the person with the answers. We want to find a person who can teach us, give us hope and encouragement and joy in the midst of our pain and sorrow and grief. We're looking for the person with the answers. Uh, let me give you some examples. When I was a junior in high school, um, our church hired a new pastor. Our previous pastor who had been there 11 years 
maybe 13 years, retired, and we hired a new pastor, and he came to town. And uh, what was interesting, I, I wasn't privy to all of these conversations, but one thing that I observed is that many of the people in our church who'd been there a long time, uh, uh, stable, faithful followers of Jesus, came to our new pastor for help with some deep-seated issues and struggles I didn't even know they had. I was a junior in high school. I didn't know anything, but, but they, they came. They came why did they come to the new guy? Because they knew the old guy didn't have the answers. He'd been around long, long enough. They knew he wasn't the guy. And they came to the new guy because <laughs> during the candidating process, he was trying to get hired. He told us he had all the answers. You're going to help us. You're going to help us finally fix what's broken in my life. Let me make a political prediction. I'm not a, I, I, I'm not a, 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 a pundit, but I, here's something that I think is going to happen. So uh, there is discussion in the press, in, in all kinds of press, right and left uh, press, about how the Biden administration seems to be struggling here a little bit. And there's inflation, a lot of inflation. How long will it be before the comparisons are made between Joe Biden and Jimmy Carter? Here he is, Jimmy Carter again. Those of you who lived through the 70s, we're experiencing it just, just like it was in the 70s, Jimmy Carter again. And you know what you, what you need, what you desperately need if you have Jimmy Carter again? You know what you need? You need Ronald Reagan again. Where is, where is Ronald Reagan 2.0, right? We're going to search our politicians to find the one who's going to come and deliver us from the malaise, rescue us from the inflation that Jimmy Carter 2.0 has brought. We need Ronald Reagan 2.0 who's going to rescue us. That's just my prediction. I could be wrong. But can, can you see that happening? Or think about the, the weight that some people put on our cultural influencers and their, uh, what they say. Oprah will solve all of my problems. Jordan Peterson is my shepherd. I shall not want. He, he's going to lead me and guide me and help me live a full life. Some people express this in romance. They're going to find the partner who's going to satisfy them wholly. J.T. English is a pastor who lives in Denver. And this week uh, uh, in Colorado, this week he tweeted... One of the most important things I do every holiday season is avoid Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You Like My Life Depends on It. That sacred task begins once again today, he said. All I want for Christmas is you. All I want is the one person who's going to make my life full and happy and satisfy me. And, and uh, I, this comes from a deep seated desire that we all have for an ultimate relationship. We want an ultimate relationship. It's a desire that was implanted in you by God himself when he made you. And he is supposed to be that ultimate relationship. He is, to be, he is the lawgiver. He is the Lord. He is the one in whose image we are made. He's the one who teaches us how to live. But because we have turned away from him and rebelled against him, we look elsewhere for that ultimate relationship. But remember, there is no substitute for Jesus. Someday he's going to return and we're going to see him face to face and, and we'll be satisfied 
Every follower of Jesus, the more you follow him, the more you get to know him, there is going to be about you this sense of dissatisfaction, the sense that there's something not right, the sense of incompleteness until we see him face to face. And if you try to fill that longing with someone else, you will be disappointed. And you're surrounded in this world by people who go from person to person, leader to leader, looking for the one. There is no the one except Jesus. While we're thinking about false teachers, I will just remind you, if the people that you are most inclined to lay hold of don't point you to Jesus, you shouldn't give that person your loyalty. False teachers. Condition number two, conflict and calamity. Conflict and calamity. Verse six, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse seven, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. This is what it's going to be like before AD 70 of the temple is destroyed. This is what it's going to be like on earth before Jesus comes. And boy, it sounds kind of like the headlines today a little bit, doesn't it? Wars, famines, trouble. Jesus says, actually, verse 6, such things must happen as if it's necessary for them to happen. Why is it necessary that these things happen? Well, I I think Paul explains this in Romans chapter 8. He talks about birth pains too. And in Romans chapter 8, he talks about how creation is struggling. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 2. 30. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Now verse 21, in hope of what? That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Nature itself feels the impact of our sin. Nature itself is broken by our rebellion to God, and sometimes it groans. It groans and it shakes, and nature itself feels the weight of our rebellion against God. This is how nations... Warfare is how nations respond to the fact that the coming Lord has died, risen, and ascended, and is seated at God's right hand. Nations are in uproar like uh, the, the, the plates are of, of the, the globe. Here's the response to these calamities, these conflicts. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. Verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Jesus is concerned about your outlook here. Don't be alarmed. You may be tempted when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famine. You may be tempted to think that this is a sign that God has lost control, that God doesn't know what's happening in the universe, that things are out of his hands or that he's lost his providential oversight of the universe. Don't think that. Don't be alarmed. For us in the midst of these things, there's peace. I've told you about my experience in riding roller coasters. I'm not as hardy a roller coaster rider as I used to be. And sometimes when I'm on roller coasters and I regret my decision to be on that roller coaster in a particular moment, I comfort myself by reminding myself of two things. One, thousands of people have ridden this before me and have not died. That's a comfort. And secondly, I comfort myself, it'll be over soon. 
It'll be over soon, right? You wait in line for three hours to ride for two and a half minutes. But in two and a half minutes, it'll be over. It will be over soon. I'll be back at the station and I can get off of this infernal machine. Remind yourself, Jesus says, don't be alarmed. It's bad, but it's going to end. It's going to end. Soon enough, Jesus will be back. Calamities increase, particularly at these two points in time that we thought about. Don't be alarmed. Jesus is coming back. Uh, Condition number three, persecution and hatred. Persecution and hatred. Verses 9 through 12 is a sequence of events, chain of related events. Then you will be handed over to, the persecu- to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. We've talked about that already. Verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the uh, verse 13 will come to in just a minute. Notice this chain of events, persecution, betrayal, hatred, many people walking away from the faith. These are not unfamiliar circumstances. I know that Jesus is thinking about these calamitous periods of time, but did you know that more people were martyred in the 20th century for following Jesus than in the previous 19 combined? Jesus says, you're going to be hated by all nations because of me. Well, Paul spoke about this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Galatians 1.10, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. If you want to be universally loved, don't follow Jesus interesting in Matthew, he says that we'll do good works and our good works will be seen by other people and they'll glorify God. We're not hated. We're not hated for our soup kitchens and we're not hated for our homeless shelters and we're not hated for our hospitals and we're not hated for our schools. But in every generation, every follower of Jesus, there's a reason that we are hated. In this generation, of course, it would be our refusal to surrender to the sexual revolution. We can't affirm, we can't applaud, we can't celebrate what those around us want to affirm, applaud, and celebrate. You will be hated. We understand. I know Jesus is talking about two different times. He's not talking specifically about ours, but I understand what he's saying here in this passage. He says in in these times when you're hated, he says many, verse 10, will turn away from the faith. Do you notice that? How often he uses the word many, most, many in this passage. There's going to be a persecution that's going to drive a lot of people away. You can understand why. If you became a follower of Jesus because some preacher promised you that if you follow Jesus, your life will be easy and that you'll be wealthy and healthy and prosperous and, 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 and all your troubles will disappear. If you become a follower of Jesus under those conditions and then terrible things happen, huh, you're not going to want to stick around. Uh, what's the response? How does Jesus tell us to respond? Verse 13, do not quit. Do not quit. 
verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Your perseverance in the midst of these troubles, Jesus says, are a sign of the genuineness of your faith. True faith sticks around. Verse 12, false faith grows cold. False faith leads to love that grows cold. True faith sticks around. True faith, actually, when pressure comes, our love doesn't grow cold, our love grows hot. We love more. When we're hated, followers of Jesus don't hate back. Followers of Jesus love more. Why? We learned that from Jesus. Because he loves when he is hated. It's almost as if the Bible describes it, God's love is provoked by our hatred, provoked by our uh, rebellion, by our brokenness. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 7. It says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love, his unique love, his amazing love. He demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's as if our condition of being a sinner uh, provokes God to love us. That all this persecution and hatred and betrayal against God is elicits from Jesus a response of love, sacrificial love. It doesn't turn him away. It brings him near. It brings him near. And what does he do? He dies on the cross for our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are dependent upon that coming near love of Jesus. You have in response to it, turned and trusted in him and identified yourself with him in faith and being united to him, you have life and forgiveness with him. All because your enmity did not drive Jesus away. In fact, it brought him near. True faith doesn't have love that grows cold. True faith has love that is warm, is hot, that, that is provoked by persecution and hatred towards to gentleness and kindness and love and not hatred itself. Don't quit, Jesus says. Number four, condition number four, this is surprising, surprising, gospel preaching, gospel preaching. Verse 14 and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, we have to think about this from a number of angles. This is astounding. Persecution is rising. Hatred is rising. Betrayal is rising. And Jesus talks in these, era, uh, these eras of the gospel going out. It's, it's not slowing the Christians down. It's not slowing the gospel down. The gospel is moving and spreading and going. Now, if you're Jesus' original audience listening to him speak, and he says whole world, your whole world is, is pretty small. When you think whole world, you think Mediterranean world, and you think the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, you think, you think of a pretty small world. And if that's Jesus' emphasis, then we understand why verse 34 is true when verse 34 says, truly I tell you this generation, these people that I'm talking to right now, you will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. By AD 70, the gospel had gone to every 
uh, every continent around, every nation around the Mediterranean. But think about us as we pick up this passage here and you hear the words, the whole world. Your world is really big. You know about a lot of people in the world and you know about the places where the gospel still needs to go. And Jesus says in response to this condition of gospel preaching, do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged, he says. Verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world. It will happen. The gospel will be will spread through the whole world. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by persecution. Don't be discouraged by hatred. Don't be discouraged by rejection. Don't be discouraged because some government thinks that it's going to keep followers of Jesus out. Don't be discouraged by that. The gospel's going to spread. It will move. If you think about the history of the church, the missionary headquarters of the church, the, the main missionary sending headquarters of the church The first one was a city in Antioch. The book of Acts tells us it was the church in Antioch that sent Paul out on his journey. In the course of time, the missionary sending headquarters of the world moved to Europe, Great Britain mostly. Then in the course of time, it has moved to the United States. Do you know what's going to happen if the Lord tarries, if he doesn't come back soon? The missionary headquarters of the world will move to mm, Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa. Not sure which. It will be our brothers and sisters likely in uh, Latin America or Sub-Saharan Africa who may have make great inroads into Asia for the sake of the gospel of Christ. May it be so. If you want in on what God is doing and what God cares about, invest in this, this spreading of the message. This is the beginning of Jesus' answer. And he brings some signs. He talks about signs that might upset you, that might discourage you. Don't be upset by them. Don't be discouraged by them. (laughs) Actually, things are just going to get worse. Jesus, in some way, is speaking to his disciples like an oncologist talks to his cancer patients. You go in for that first consultation, and the doctor says to you, it's going to be bad the next few months. They're going to be hard. You'll have to come in, and for several hours, a couple times a week, we're going to inject chemotherapy into your body, and it's going to make you sick. We'll do everything we can to alleviate the symptoms, but you're going to be nauseous. You're going to be tired. You're going to lose your hair. You're going to lose your energy. It's going to be bad. You should be prepared for that, and chances are very high that we're going to run into some things that we didn't even experience in the badness of the chemotherapy. It's going to be bad. But this regimen that I have laid out for you is very effective. And after these months of terrible suffering, you're going to be cancer-free. You're going to be healed. You're going to be able to, we have a bell in the the treatment room. And and when you're done, you can ring that bell and you'll be cancer-free. You'll be whole, you'll be healthy. It's going to be bad, but that day is coming of wholeness. And we followers of Jesus, we read this and we recognize it's going to be bad, but we're waiting for that day of wholeness when Jesus comes back. That's why John said it, and we say it with him. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for the frankness with which the Lord Jesus speaks. We recognize some of these things, some of these judgments that we haven't yet even come to in this passage. They'll be an expression of your great justice, your commitment, your great commitment to doing what is right. Lord, you warned the disciples, that generation, about the terrible calamities that will take place in AD 70. And this passage is a warning to those followers of yours who will be on the earth before the Lord Jesus returns. We see these signs, even these conditions, even in our own day. And you know about our temptation to be discouraged and downhearted and alarmed. I pray that during these weeks that we think about your second coming, that you would fill us with joy so much so that it would swallow up our anxiety or our fear. And I do pray that in the midst, while we wait, in the midst of waiting, you would make us faithful, diligent, happy followers of Jesus. We are reminded and grateful that there is no calamity that can come that is greater than your power and that is more dependable or more influential in our life than your promises. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.